and welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. Thanks so much for tuning in, coming back to the show. First-time listeners finding the show, welcome aboard. Always happy to have you. Been a few weeks since I was able to put out a podcast, scheduling and life and all of these other things getting in the way, but here we are. So much important stuff to talk about, but before we do, let me do my song and dance for Counterpunch, the hawking of our proverbial wares. Counterpunch Plus, that is our subscriber section. You can get your subscription and support Counterpunch that way. You'll have access to all of this great content, all of the columns that used to be in the print magazine, plus the archives of more than 25 years of great stuff, a lot of stuff every day on the website, every week new content going up on Counterpunch Plus, including hopefully in the future some more stuff from me. So please do support Counterpunch in that way. Counterpunch Plus uh, subscription is the way to go. Uh, If you like some of my stuff, you can also follow me on Patreon, patreon patreon.com forward slash Eric Drates or lots more videos, uh, geopolitical analysis, commentaries, and so forth. All right, let me turn to my guest today, somebody who I've literally been meaning to have on this show for probably three or four or five years now, and for whatever reason, it just hasn't happened. And here we are, it's happening. Abby Martin is with me. Abby Martin, you may or may not know if you don't. She is the creator and host of The Empire Files. She is a co-host of Media Roots Podcast with her brother, Robbie, former guest on this show. She's a filmmaker, excellent film we'll talk about, Gaza Fights for Freedom. The websites, theempirefiles.tv, gazafightsforfreedom.com, and abbymartin.org, at Abby Martin on Twitter. Abby, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Eric. It's a huge honor to be on. Oh, stop it. It's perfectly okay and ordinary for you to be on here. <laughs> Abby, I've been meaning to have you on for a long time, and so um, I don't know where we should begin because you and I have somewhat similar trajectories in how we got to making media and podcasts and so forth, really coming mm-hmm. out of the anti-war movement and anti-war politics that kind of shapes our worldview. So I want to really focus on uh, anti-war issues and imperialism, and really I think that is the broadest issue we can start with, The Empire. Your show is called The Empire Files. We live in the heart of the empire, and we are witnessing what I think is a momentous transition in the way that the empire is administered. How do you read the move from Trump to Biden? Well, Trump, I think that we can all agree that people were wary, the establishment was wary about Trump becoming the CEO of the empire, mostly because he was completely unpredictable. I think he proved to be a very loyal servant uh, to the ruling class. Um, That's proven by the ridiculous tax cuts that he passed for the ultra wealthy. Um, But of course, he also served the bipartisan foreign policy establishment quite well for all the talk about accusing him of being a Putin puppet. I mean, he actually was not at all a subservient to Russia. In fact, he did a lot of crazy stuff when it came to that area of the world, um, lobbying NATO partners to spend more money, uh, sanctioning Russia for the annexation of Crimea. Um, and the list goes on there. But I mean, in every region of the world, Trump pretty much ramped up U.S. militarism and empire, doubled civilian casualties because of his increase in bombings around the world, increased drone strikes 300 percent, told the Pentagon to take the gloves off, uh, literally just gave them carte blanche to do whatever they wanted, didn't even really want to be asked uh, what they were going to do, dropped the largest non-nuclear bomb ever to be dropped, uh, the Moab, the mother of all bombs on Afghanistan. 
it was a pretty sadistic foreign policy. And that was clear from the get go. When Trump was running his campaign, he spoke out of both sides of his mouth because he's a con artist and that's what con artists do. So he was speaking to this fake notion of a populist right wing, this isolationism that people think, um, you know, they think that there's this anti-war current with the right wing. We all kind of know that that's a farce. But he was speaking to that crowd and also at the same time speaking in pretty clear terms about wanting to escalate the wars so that he can win the wars. And that included beheading our enemies. That included carpet bombing people, killing terrorists, families. Um, He was you know, it was pretty disgusting, the stuff that he was saying. So I think that when Trump came in, his whole his whole uh, modus operandi was like, I'm going to increase the bloodlust and just the violence perpetrated by the U.S. war machine in a very open fashion so that we can win these wars, these these wars and finally like bring our troops home. And that's exactly what he did. He stayed true to his word. He he, and he bombed the shit out of them. Um, And of course, emboldened all of these generals that he surrounded himself with and everyone the entire time, Eric, I don't know if you got this sense during his administration, but I'm breathing a sigh of relief because now we can all unify in our shared hatred of the president again, because for the longest time, people were bending over backwards, apologizing for Trump and literally like believing his con artistry, you know, saying, oh, no, he wants to bring the troops home. Oh, no, he wants to do this. He just can't. He's prevented from John Bolton. It's like, okay, well, he appointed all of these people that now you're saying are preventing him from actually doing the things that he can do with the signing of a piece of paper. I mean, he was he was the executor. I mean, he could have brought the troops home in a day if he really wanted to. So that aside, um, Trump really was a perfect CEO for the empire. I think that they just he was too um, belligerent um, at times and he was too unruly and he did things a little bit sloppy. Uh, We see Chris Murphy, that Democratic senator who pretty much spelled it out when it came to Venezuela. He just said, we agree with his policy, but he didn't do it slickly. You know, I'm I'm paraphrasing. But so Biden, of course, I think he is more predictable um, and he can mask his warmongering, of course, just like the good old neoliberal doctrine, you just mask it in humanitarianism and and people don't really take a second glance. And Biden's entire foreign policy cabinet, you know, they stemmed from these warmongering think tanks funded directly by the war machine defense contractors. I think one third of his Pentagon transition team was funded, funded directly by like CSIS and CNAS. Really, really uh, crazy um, think tanks there in D.C. that are shaping some of the worst foreign policy maneuvers that we're seeing. And his whole platform is to reposition our foreign policy uh, to isolate China and Russia now. So this great power, um, global power competition doctrine or whatever the hell it's called, uh, to essentially focus on these two nuclear powers. And it's a really scary thing. And and um, it really just comes back to building up these imperial alliances you know, because Trump, of course, they claimed was this isolationist. Um, they hated his foreign policy. And it always like kind of came from the right. Right. Like they said, you're writing love letters to dictators and all this shit. It's like, dude, he's doing exactly what you guys want. It's insane that you're actually criticizing him for things that, you know, like the talking to Kim Jong-un and <laughs> like not going hard enough against Putin or whatever. Um, so the fact that Biden is already navigating um toward China and Russia is just a really, really bad sign. 
and we can get into obviously the policies. But um, but yeah, I mean, the foreign policy cabinet that Biden's resurrected has come essentially just directly from the Obama era. And some key foreign policy players are directly implicated in some of the largest scandals in the last 10 years, the torture scandal, the invasion of Iraq and the war in Libya. So really bad signs all around. But Eric is the most diverse cabinet in the history of this country. And let me tell you, some real nice people packed in there. So I feel real good about it. I've just been at brunch every day, all day because we're back, baby. America is back. I feel good about it. I'm riding high. Um, but the question is from 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 a broader uh, um, analysis, I guess, of what Biden means. How does Biden prosecute imperialism? What I mean to say is, is the Biden administration administering a dying empire and they know it? Or are they continuing to labor under the illusion of a uh, unipolar global order where the United States remains the primary mover and shaker? I think it's a good question. It's hard to imagine that people at this point can't see the U.S. as a dying empire, considering that we are a completely failed state. You know, the covid rates are rampant. Homelessness is out of control. Uh, The fact that 8 million more people have plunged into poverty just in the last 10 months. I mean, yeah, the signs are all there, right? The fact that you could go on and on about how exceptional, exceptionally horrible we are compared to every other industrialized country. So it is perplexing that anyone um, with wide eyes, not behind rose colored glasses cannot look at this as a dying empire. Right. And, and, and I think the last gasp is throwing just so much money just beefing up the military machine year after year. And I mean, I don't know. It's a good question. I think that when you look at people like Robert Kagan um, and you look at the brand of neoconservatism that he represents and you look at people like Tony Blinken, who's the new secretary of state, they do believe that um, the U.S. is the bastion of freedom. I mean, I think they really do believe that if the U.S. weren't on top, And I hear this argument from a lot of people that if we weren't the empire, China or Russia would take its place. So we so it has to be someone. Right. So it might as well be us because we're the good guys. And you look at the Sam Harris argument because we have good intentions. It doesn't matter what happens as a result of those good intentions. At least we have good intentions. Um, And um, I think it's exactly why we're seeing these foreign policy shifts against Russia and China to isolate them and build up our junior collaborators, uh, the NATO alliances, so we can we can just continue to try to reassert ourselves as as the dominant force in the world. And you're going to see a lot of uh, dirty actions to try to delegitimize and economically weaken these two main competitors. What do you think? A lot of good intentions buried in shallow graves all over the world, (laughs) really. Um, I, I think that what you're saying is correct, because basically what we're looking at here is not just a, a dying empire, but a growing uh, recognition that we are past our peak, right? That there is that 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 we're only headed downwards. I've seen that more and more uh, from various publications, and I think that unfortunately the road uh, the road that we're headed down in terms of our uh, dying empire is one towards right wing fascist type politics more than it is anything uh, productive or positive. Um, but with that in mind, I want to focus since we kind of started out with this very broad question. I want to focus in a little bit more 
anymore if we couldn't talk about one of the countries that I know you've done some work on recently, uh, Yemen. And Yemen has come into the news recently with Joe Biden's, President Joe Biden's, just still a strange phrase to say, President Biden's uh, comments about uh, uh, stopping U.S. aid for uh, so-called offensive operations in Yemen. That is to say, aid to the Saudis for offensive operations in Yemen. So my question to you is, first of all, how do you read this uh, policy shift? And what, if anything, is really changing here? Is there a substantive change? Is this window dressing? Yeah. And I want to preempt this by saying there's something that's just really disturbing about the passing off um, from between Democrat and Republican administrations. The fact that Obama you know, took over from Bush and actually expanded the empire, expanded drone wars and, you know, the Libya bombing and and all of that. Um, and Trump takes over and increases sanctions around the world to genocidal levels, tens of thousands dead in Venezuela, malnutrition found in Iranian children for the first time in decades, just real sadistic stuff, not to mention, of course, the drones increase 300 percent. So as Biden is now taking back over from Trump. No one in his administration is actually talking about reining any of this back. It's just a given that you will be inheriting this expansive um, war machine that Trump belligerently like oversaw disgusting atrocities around the world. And there's absolutely no discussion of it whatsoever. And you can see that with the Iran negotiations. There's just I mean, he's now using Trump sanctions as a bargaining chip instead of apologizing for what the past administration did. So I, that's a trend that is very disturbing and not talked about enough. Um, it just continues to grow. Looking at Space Force, Jen Psaki just said she's really excited about, about Space Force. This is not a joke. Um, Space Force is a really dangerous thing. Not only is it siphoning billions of dollars to create this absurd new agency, but it's also violating multiple treaties and starting a new arms race. Like, the hell's going on here? So to Yemen, um, yeah, I mean, this was one of the few policy shifts that I think that we were all expecting under Biden, because not only did he have key players uh, that were discussing openly the, wanting to end the offensive support for the war in Yemen, the U.S.-backed war, um, but also Biden himself ta- talked about this a lot in the campaign trail. We know that this was uh, vetoed by the Trump administration. Trump's last acts, one of his last acts was actually expediting weapons sales to the Saudi coalition that's bombing Yemen. So I think that everyone was very hopeful. And plus, the anti-war movement has been focusing on Yemen for the last several years because it is the largest humanitarian crisis in the world. Eric, we know how devastating the situation is. I don't need to belabor that point. So when Biden made that giant foreign policy speech on February 4th, we were you know, listening with uh, open ears. Okay, what what exactly are you going to do about Yemen? And he had very important caveats and very strategic keywords that he used in his speech that I think spell it all out. Uh, when you look past the headlines saying, yeah, we're ending U.S. support for the war, what does this really mean? So Biden um, said an end to offensive support. So offensive um, can 
you know, if you're looking at defensive, that's exactly the justification that Obama Biden got into the Yemen war in the first place <laughs> to defend Saudi Arabia, right? And de to defend their border. The entire war was structured around the logic of defensive operations. So when you're announcing an end to offensive operations, what exactly does that mean? What exactly is offensive versus defensive? Because it's not just the bombing from U.S. Um, arms companies that were selling the Saudi coalition. It was actually logistical, tactical support for targeting the rebels on the ground and training Saudi troops. Um, so all of that, you know, you can look at the Pentagon's language. I'm sure that they can paint all of that as somehow defensive to protect our strongest, quote unquote, counterterrorism partner in the region. So he, you know, Tony Blinken actually said that we will still be offering support for counterterrorism measures from Riyadh and elsewhere. So I have not heard any specifications of what exactly is considered offensive versus defensive. And here's the other clincher. Relevant arms sales are ending. Relevant arms sales, not all arms sales. So what exactly is a relevant arm when it comes to this genocide that the U.S. has been backing? Uh, it, it's It becomes pretty clear that the arms will continue, Eric, um, and I don't know how the U.S. is going to track which missiles are sent to be dropped on poor Yemenis. Um, it seems like this is just window dressing. Sadly, I wish I were wrong, but unfortunately, uh, there has been no clearly defined specifications of what exactly this means and how it is any different than what we've been seeing. Um, and Tony Blinken said that they're lifting that terrorist des designation for the Houthis. There's a lot going on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a lot going on there. That's what you just you, you just started saying what I was about to say. There's a lot going on in what Biden said, and it's not mm. just about ending support for offensive operations. The delisting of the Houthis as a, as a quote unquote terrorist organization is a major move. Uh, you know applauded by many people but <clears throat> again there's the there's this question of why what is the real reason for why they would do this because i think we all understand that it's long-standing u.s but well i shouldn't say we all understand those of us who have been following yemen understand that it's long-standing u.s policy to to see the houthis as proxies of the iranians so why would you be delisting them at this point it seems to me like what biden really wants here and what the administration really wants is they feel that this whole war has been mismanaged and blundered by, by MBS and by the Saudis and by the Trump administration. And what they would like to do is get a hold of the reins, delist the Houthis and manage a negotiation process rather than continuing to allow this thing to fester in an uncontrolled way. It sounds to me like managerial imperialism is back on the table here. Yeah, I think you just spelled it out pretty clearly. Uh, that's exactly what we're seeing happen. And one other thing that Tony said, which I found interesting, is that he continues to assert that he is going to sanction the Houthis. So when you're talking about distributing urgent aid to millions of people who are on the brink of famine, uh, I, I don't know how you're going to get around sanctioning 80 percent of Yemeni territory. Um, but yeah, very managerial, especially since um, the U.S. has made it clear that they are not going to stop bombing Yemen themselves. I mean, we're we're still at war with the AQAP in Yemen. So it's it's just it's kind of disgusting when you look at it. I mean, this is there are millions of people who are starving. We've all seen the photos. They are absolutely horrifying. And the fact that this is even happening 
um, in such a managerial fashion is just like really, uh, really disgusting, Eric. And it really shows you that the anti-war movement. It, it, let me let me say this. Biden oversaw, along with Obama, the entry into the Yemen war. Right. Um, and the fact that he is even trying to placate the anti-war community shows you that the anti-war community has been very successful in putting this issue for, for, at the forefront. And so it is a testament to the strength of activism and direct action against uh, the U.S. involvement in this. So that is very big. And so we can't let Biden get away with uh with pretending like something has changed, we need to keep up the pressure here um, because clearly he knows that, um, you know, the anti-war community is not going to let him off the hook. And I just hope that people really keep the pressure on. Not to, I, I agree with all of that. And I certainly would never want to take away from the anti-war position here, but I, I, I have to raise a little bit of skepticism that Biden gives even a semblance <laughs> of a fuck about what the anti-war uh, contingent thinks. I think this is much more about the realist foreign policy camp, which sees Yemen as a disaster and which sees uh, uh, Saudi Arabia as a fledgling regional power that has now been eclipsed by Turkey and other countries in terms of influence, in terms of uh, strategic necessity and so forth. And so I think that from the Biden perspective, they see Saudi Arabia as becoming problematic when it comes to Yemen. And I think that's what this is really about. Yeah, I mean, I, Trump certainly did no favors with that alliance. You know, it was it was kind of ugly. The Khashoggi murder, um, the Lockheed Martin bomb that killed like 40 kids on that bus. I mean, there was a lot of scandalous stuff that made the Yemen war, you know, not palatable, I think, to, to a lot of people who were just like on the periphery and uh, maybe maybe Biden just wants to address it. Uh, but, yeah, I think that you're right. I think this has much more to do with um, with Saudi and, you know, the region as opposed to the strength of the anti-war com community. But I did I did want to give some credit to the fact that at least people have been, you know, like people all over the place are doing direct actions to try to bring attention to this. And I think that um, in part that could be why they feel that they have to address uh, the need to end this war, or at least address the urgent humanitarian crisis there. But yeah, I mean, Biden's an unmovable stone who clearly does not give a fuck about anything. And that's that's been crystallized with his uh, lack of doing literally anything at all for people since he got elected. It's just like, what the fuck? It's like, dude, just give us the checks. 50, half a century, do something. <laughs> like, yeah, like what? And it's just like crazy. It's like, he knows how much power he has. He's been in, he's been a fucking Senator for decades. Like uh, it, it's sick. He, he is, he's such a right wing shill. It's not even funny. So yeah, we're going to have to, we're going to have to really um, mobilize uh, urgently um, to build up some sort of resistance movement, Eric, that that brings anti-imperialism to the forefront because these people can't wait. Couldn't agree more. Absolutely. Before we go to the break, I want to just talk a little bit about this, you know, obviously related issue of Iran. And we could do a whole show on just Iran. We don't have the time to cover everything. But I would just note that uh, a lot of people talking about Biden is sort of returning a sense of, uh, you know, sensible policy uh, with vis-a-vis -vis Iran. But I'm also skeptical of that because, uh, number one, whether or not Biden 
wants to return the United States to the JCPOA, the, the nuclear deal with Iran. I'm not sure that the Iranians can come back to that deal at this point, considering the tremendous embarrassment to the Rouhani government with the U.S. pulling out and the fact that the Iranians have an election this year and you'll have a new administration, potentially a hardliner administration, or certainly one that's going to be less willing to deal with the United States. So my question is... What do we make of U.S. policy vis-a-vis Iran, given four years of Trump and all of the damage that was done to even the, you know, little bit of goodwill that the Obama administration had developed? Yeah, this is another thing that has been completely disastrous. From day one, it was really clear that Biden was going to fuck this up in a major way. Um, And a lot of his foreign policy cabinet were people involved in the secret negotiations. And that's actually what gave me hope going into this. I thought, well, at the very least, and I think that we can agree that there are major differences between Trump and Biden when it comes to domestic policy, perhaps, but on the foreign policy level, there aren't that many um, beyond rhetoric. And when it came to Biden taking back uh, the empire, I thought, okay, well, at the very least, we're going to try to renegotiate this Iran deal Um, Aside from the fact that, you know, the Iran deal is just is stupid in the first place because it's the U.S. dictating things that it should never be dictating. That needs to be said. But at the same time, I thought, okay, at least, you know, these these debilitating, crippling sanctions on Iran's economy can be lifted and we can start from scratch. And Biden, you know, hopefully will do that because everyone was saying that was going to (laughs) be happening. Right. So, uh, yeah, unfortunately, it's been the opposite. Um, Like I said before, I mean, the 800 plus sanctions that Trump put on Iran alone, not being lifted whatsoever. And that is literally the only thing Iran is asking us to do. And Iran has tremendous goodwill. This is coming after Trump ripping up the nuclear deal, engaging in constant war games in the Persian Gulf constant threats of annihilation, right? Like every couple months, he will just like he would just like threaten um, the government on Twitter or whatever. Um, of course, the assassination of Soleimani and the assassination of Fakhrizadeh, a civilian, uh, which of course the U.S. was involved in. So all of these things Biden should take into account and like like hold a press conference immediately and just be like, we are so sorry for what Trump did. Can we start from scratch and actually engage in diplomacy? Um, and you're not seeing that at all. Instead, you're just seeing them really put it at the at the bottom of their priorities list, um, wanting Iran to totally capitulate to the United States. Um, Blinken is out there saying Iran is three months from a nuclear weapon. I mean, are you fucking Iran has never developed a nuclear weapon. They are not trying to develop a nuclear weapon. Of course, they are not adhering to the nuclear deal. Why would they? Why would they? Right? It's been four years of the U.S. just completely uh, violating every which way that the deal had laid out. Uh, it, It is absolutely sick, the imperial hubris and arrogance of the U.S. empire to actually say Iran um, needs to concede, you know, everything that they have, every single bargaining chip, every single uh, piece of leverage needs to just be given up in order for them to even engage, re-engage with the United States when the United States has been clearly the aggressor the entire time. It always has been. 
And so, yeah, I mean, Iran has even said, okay, look, let's have the EU involved with with negotiating the terms. And the U.S. just said no. The U.S. just said, no, you need to go back and comply with the original deal terms before we even talk, before we even talk. So like you said, I mean, the fact that Iran has an election coming up in June, they've already done so much to avoid some sort of direct confrontation with the U.S. The fact that they strategically did not respond in the way that they obviously could have after the assassination of Soleimani was a strategic move on Iran's behalf. Of course, they don't want to get into warfare with the U.S., but they also don't want to be humiliated. They have to appear somewhat hardlined, right, and stand up for themselves. And so they are walking a fine line here. And it is going to be interesting to see what happens in the election, because what the hell are the Iranian people thinking? I mean, it's... It upsets me so much uh, that Biden has reneged on the most basic and simplest foreign policy uh, win that he could do. You know, like everyone wants this. Um, I I would like to hear what your thoughts are other than I think the most obvious, the elephant in the room, Israel, really not wanting to reenter the negotiations. And of course, they were initially done in secret. And Blinken has said that was a mistake. Now he wants Gulf allies and Israel involved in the new deal that they make. So it's a it's a it's a mess. It's a complete mess. And the issue with Iran, too, and the issue with Iran, too, is that it goes so far beyond the political because of the economic warfare that the U.S. waged against Iran and continues to wage, which has all of these these sort of knock on effects throughout the various segments of society, things like shortages of medicine and and, and inability to access international cash markets and make a, a foreign um currency transfers and things like that. These are very basic uh, uh, sort of aspects of people's lives. And Iran, of course, has this massive diaspora all over the world, uh, millions of people living all over the world who are sending money and so forth. So Iran being shut out economically of the international uh, financial transaction systems and all of these various, for- uh, and that's not even talking about the US and Israel waging cyber war against Iran mm-hmm. on a fairly regular basis, at least over the last decade or so. So so there's a number of facets to this. And this, again, sort of brings me back to this idea that we're way far down the road now. We're so much farther than we were five, six, seven years ago. And if you think the Iranians are going to walk in naive to any of this process, they're not going to. Exactly. I mean, why would they trust anything that the U.S. says at this point? No reason. No reason. We'd be incredibly lucky if they did want to do engage in any sort of diplomacy. It's it's a miracle that they're even... Uh, pontificating whether or not to engage with the U.S. It's it's a disgrace, man. And Biden is a is a disgrace. Um, and, and again, like it's such an easy win for him. So it's just it, it's baffling and dumbfounding why they are screwing this up so badly and mismanaging something that could just be, you know, again, like a, a, a just a foreign policy win. And then he can move on and at least have that behind him. But he can't even do that. No, he can't. All right, let's take a quick break. On the other side of the break, we'll continue our uh, hop, skip, and jump around the global imperial chessboard. I want to talk a little bit about Afghanistan, this horrendous, ongoing, multi-decade war crime that <laughs> committed by the United States. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about Abby's experiences in Palestine and some uh, issues related to that. that and a whole lot more. Stick with us. We will be right back.
Everybody knows it's going still Our motherlands and mother seas Here's what we believe It's simple, we don't care here on Counterpunch Radio chatting with Abby Martin. Of course, you're already visiting the Empire Files on YouTube and the website, but just in case you're pretending that you're not, the empirefiles.tv is the website. Uh, I would highly recommend you go check all of that stuff out. Of course, Abby's uh, work is top notch as you're hearing here in this conversation. So Abby, Afghanistan, I teased it a little bit before the break. Teased is probably the worst word to use in this case, but uh, (laughs) I I, I talked about it a little bit before the break. you know, this sort of forgotten war, this this just horrendous war crime that we've been committing for 20 plus years. Um, we recently had some some interesting developments, the announcement of uh, uh, decreased U.S. troop levels. Um, but we also had an interesting report that you've talked about recently with regard to actual uh, military and uh, quasi-military presence. So talk a little bit about some of the new data on private mercenaries in Afghanistan and what this means about the evolving nature of U.S. imperialism. Absolutely. So, of course, this is this is kind of in the background, Eric, uh, just like the drone wars, right? In our post-9-11 dystopia, the Afghanistan war is a permanent war, and people have largely forgotten about it. And it is absolutely a war crime and it continues to be a war crime and you know the the reasons for staying just keep evolving i think when you're looking from an imperialist anti-imperialist lens you can understand that um, essentially the reason that the u.s wants to stay there is because they want to turn it into a neo-colony um, they want to control the mining operations that are inevitably going to happen. As Karzai talked about, there's up to $3 trillion of mineral wealth in the ground. It also sits at a crossroads of giant global competitors. Uh, There's pipelines to be built there. And of course, the opium trade, which uh, the CIA probably wants to manage as a black market product. So big pharma needs that that opium. Um, And right now we're buying it the big pharma is buying it from uh, Turkey and India, and I'm sure they'd like to get their hands on the black market supply and control that. So there's multiple reasons why the U.S. military is still there. 
Um, otherwise, they would have gotten out a long time ago. I mean, there was no military, quote unquote, solution. I sound like Tulsi Gabbard, <laughs> someone who's like, there's no military solution to this. Therefore, we should leave instead of being like people are dying. <laughs> there's like, <laughs> you know, um, that was always funny about her, her anti-war angle. But yeah, I mean, it, it's I mean, what is there where to even start with Afghanistan? You know, I mean, Trump gets in there, doubles the amount of troops, you know, Obama oversaw this ill-fated troop surge that just was a complete disaster. Trump gets in there with the rhetoric that he's going to end the Afghanistan war. Everyone gives him credit for doing so the entire time. Meanwhile, he was killing more civilians than we'd ever seen since the invasion of Afghanistan. Um, more U.S. soldiers died under Trump than ever before. More Afghan civilians, more violence uh, was seen on the ground. Of course, I mentioned the Moab was dropped. I mean, this was this was said to be dropped on ISIS caves. I don't, you know, I never saw any proof of that. It had a blast radius of a mile. You had generals basically saying, "We're not going to waste our time digging through dead bodies to count." how many people actually died here. Just a, a bunch of crazy, horrific things happened under Trump in Afghanistan. And everyone was just kind of like, Trump's trying to end the war, right? He's trying to oversee this deal with the Taliban. Um, the deal with the Taliban, when you look at the actual details of it, it had impossible benchmarks that, of course, the Taliban could never adhere to. It was meant as a complete facade um, days after the last iteration of the deal was signed, the U.S. bombed Afghanistan again. So the U.S. has been continuing to bomb Afghanistan. The U.S., of course, is the one who's breaking whatever deal was made. Um, and that was never done. So when Trump leaves office, everyone gave him credit being like, look, he wants to bring these troops home. Um, and he did indeed remove, I think, like 2,500 troops, leaving 2,500 there. Of course, that does not mean that the CIA is gone. That does not mean the private contractors are gone. That does not mean the drones and the bombing is gone. We thought that Trump increased private contractors to 5,600, I think, during his term, which was a big deal because under Obama, even when there was tens of thousands of troops during the troop surge, there was only 5,000 private contractors. So that is a big deal that Trump did that. And we know that his big buddy, Eric Prince, founder of Blackwater, was lobbying to completely privatize the Afghanistan war. Let's let's get U.S. personnel out of there. Let's, you know, let's uh, America first. Right. Let's focus on on America at home and privatize the war and just have people from other countries or whatever doing the dirty work for us. So I never saw any um, any of that plan come to fruition. Right. And I just thought it kind of fell by the wayside until until a couple of weeks ago after Trump leaves office. I saw a report uh, that was reported in Stars and Stripes about private contractor numbers in Afghanistan that are now 18,000. 18,000 private mercenaries are in Afghanistan managing the occupation. Absolutely astounding numbers there. Um, these are these people are fighting because when Trump was there, the number of private contractors um, that had died were actually double the amount of U.S. troops. So that really shows you what kind of warfare these people are engaged with. They're not just sitting uh, fixing the Pepsi machine at the base like they are out there um, doing shit that is getting them killed. So 
that kind of gives you an insight on on the role of these private mercenaries and the fact that there's actually 18,000 of them is astounding. It's astounding that no one's talking about this. Um, and I think it shows you that we're in there for the long haul, Eric. Um, Biden came to office basically promising an indefinite, uh, an, you know, the war to continue indefinitely. He's, he said that he's going to maintain thousands of U.S. personnel there. Um, and at, at the same time, he said, yeah, but we need to end the war. So you're just going to see the buck passed off from administration to administration, um, just like you've seen the generals, you know, put forward saving face, just just lying through their teeth about why they're there. And uh, yeah, they, they get their big medals and they go off to their um, war profiteering gig after they leave their post in Afghanistan. And everyone wins except the Afghan people who continue to suffer under U.S. occupation for 21 years now. I want to return to this point that uh, we really should examine a little bit further about the sort of continuity of imperialism, administration to administration, and really not just a continuity, but sort of a, a growing uh, metastasizing uh, process. But um, before we do that, I want to just ask you, and I mean, I realize you're probably speculating a little bit, but just, uh, you know, whatever, do it. Um, what do you <laughs> think, what do you think is the actual reason for the negotiation, so-called negotiation with the Taliban. Why? If Trump is just this vicious monster, which mm -hmm. he is, and Trump doesn't actually care about Afghanistan. And yes, of course, we understand he wanted a political win. But is that really what this was about? I would argue, just personally, mm -hmm. I would say that this is again about China. The Chinese made tremendous inroads with the Taliban, with the Taliban representatives in Doha for years. The Chinese were one of the only uh, uh, countries to have direct contacts with the Taliban. And I think there's a tremendous worry among the strategic planners in the empire that when the United States walks away from Afghanistan, it's going to be an instantly a Chinese, uh, you know, the, the Chinese door flies open, you know, and that's for mining, that's for uh, energy, all those different sectors that the Chinese are interested in. So my question to you is, do you think that this is about Afghanistan or is it much larger about a geopolitical chessboard here? Yeah, I mean, I think that you just said it all. Um, the fact that the U.S. knew that it needed to get it's it's basically it's hand in the pie um, officially. Right. Um, and, and these deals were actually being negotiated in secret during the Obama administration. So this was something that was happening a while before Trump even you know tried to take credit for it. But I, I absolutely think you're right. I think that they knew that they needed to have the facade of doing something to negotiate peace um, while at the same time ensuring U.S. domination in the country and the region at large. And at least the last deal that I saw did exactly that. It basically made sure that there was a continuing U.S. presence in the country um, and that the U.S. has basically had first dibs um, with whatever puppet it it's working with um, managing Afghan affairs. So yeah, absolutely. This is uh, again, going back to regional domination. And the other interesting thing about Afghanistan recently is this this uh, Afghanistan kind of demonstrating a tendency that we've seen in other countries. Iraq is the one that comes to mind specifically that 
even the hand-picked U.S. puppet eventually turns against the United States because he knows what the United States is doing. If you read some of the statements from Hamid Karzai, who is now the former president of uh, Afghanistan, who very much was a U.S. puppet uh, for a large part of the time that he was in power there. I mean, Karzai is talking about the United States like it's the great Satan. You know what I mean? I mean, so, so you have this this incredible 20 year period of the United States occupying Afghanistan and yet the, just just it's just waiting to get out of the US uh, orbit. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, we are the great Satan. But I think that uh, we have to keep in mind Afghanistan because, like I said at the beginning of the question, this is one of these uh, uh, ongoing war crimes that sort of sits on all of our heads, you know, just like Iraq does. You know, Iraq was years of war crime upon war crime upon war crime, and that's really what Afghanistan is. And so to the fact that we, you know, almost every year have to sort of have an article about Afghanistan, the forgotten war, I think that tells you something about the nature of imperialism in this time. Yeah, the fact that for the first like several presidential debates, no one asked about the longest U.S. war that was still going on and it just wasn't even a question. And finally, when it was a question, it was absolutely incredible what Biden did in response. Uh, the woman who, you know, she articulated this very long, um, intelligent question about how Biden was part of the failed troop surge. And, you know, the Afghanistan papers came out and showed that they were just putting a, a face on just a big lie and, and this loss that was continuing for no reason. And Biden just like blankly looked at her and he was like, Afghanistan? <laughs> he like had no, he just like couldn't even comprehend what she was saying. And she was like, yes, sir, Afghanistan. And he was like, oh, I didn't. It's just like, dude, I, I mean, it's, I don't even want to go the route of being like he's losing his mental faculties. But at that moment, I was just like, this man is is going to be so easily puppeted. And when you look at like Obama's best traits of pushing back against some of the, you know, Russia phobes and the Victoria Newlands and stuff like that in his latter half of his term, Biden is not going to be able to do what Obama did. Um, he is going to be much easier to puppet from kind of these dark forces that he's surrounded himself with. So it's, yeah, that question though, I was just like, dude, this is a bad scene. <laughs> I, I think that's an understatement. Yeah. It's a bad scene. It's a bad scene. We got. All right. I want to talk about, I want to talk about another, uh, um, well, another bad scene, actually, the, the, the horrendous, the horrendous uh, reality that that you witnessed uh, in mm. Palestine when you were there. Um, I, I want to just before we talk about the film, I want to talk mm. a little bit just about your experience in Palestine, what that was like, um, what. I mean, obviously what you learned, but I mean, what really sticks with you? What sort of, you know, is seared into your brain after going to Palestine? Oh, man. I mean, Eric's, you know, as people who have been involved in this movement for a while, Palestine is one of those issues that really is part and parcel to anti-imperialism because it's really the same struggle, same fight. And Israel is this, you know, battering ram for the U.S. empire in the Middle East and kind of a garrison. Um, and a lot of people think it's the other way around, which is completely false. But I think before I went there, I still even though it's like you see the map and you know the situation and you know how far it has gone, I still, some part of me still wanted to believe that there was like some way 
out of the whole one state thing. And it, and it sounds naive, right? Because even though I was advocating that there was no hope for a two state solution and that, you know, one state with equal rights for all, I think you, there was still a part of me that just didn't understand until you go and see the complete atomization of the West Bank and you realize there is no land left. <laughs> there is no like state left for Palestine to even have. And so the only solution really is to have uh, an equal state with rights for all. Um, and I think the severity of the occupation, of course, you can't know until you're there. You don't really understand the refugee camp situation. You hear, of course, you know, Palestinians live in refugee camps in the West Bank and and that Gaza is this warehouse for refugees. But until you're there and I stayed in uh, Balada refugee camp and it was absolutely horrifying because Israeli troops come in and, and invade these refugee camps several times a week just to terrorize the civilians living there, shooting actual bullets, uh, rubber bullets, tear gassing everyone. People die frequently from just uh, suffocating on tear gas in these camps. And they are so overpopulated. Uh, I can't even imagine the situation with COVID right now. Um, it, it's pretty harrowing to say the least. So you know, just the brutality of the occupation and the reality of how devastating it is for Palestinians to be living day to day. I remember driving in a car because, of course, settlers have settler plates and it's a very visceral, <laughs> uh, you know, apartheid in terms of the roads just for settlers and the cars and plates just for settlers. And so I was in a car with Palestinians and, of course, were pulled over with little kids that look like they're fucking 19 with giant AKs. One of them's American. I'm like, okay, dude, why are you here? Um, um, and they, you know, they just have their, their finger on the trigger and they're just like, why, why, like, are you being kidnapped by these edibs? And I just like, I had a nail file in my purse and I knew that they could construe this nail file as a weapon and they can send these kids to prison that I was driving in the car with. And finally, when they let us go a half hour later, after I like almost pissed myself, um, the people that we were driving with, they're just like, yeah, this happens to us every day. Um, and yeah, we actually just got out of prison for like something that was just like very similar to what I was fearful would happen that night. Uh, I remember another time being at a funeral. Someone, a farmer was just arbitrarily shot in the back and killed by an IDF soldier. And we were at uh, the funeral for him. And his family was there grieving. His wife was wailing. It was very, very traumatizing. And as we leave the funeral, uh, IDF had surrounded the house and were shooting rubber, rubber bullets and tear gas to terrorize the funeral goers. So just stuff like that, that is just so beyond the pale of what I think people even understand um, when they, you know, just abstractly understand Palestine living under occupation. It is it is really really intense and very horrifying. Um, one other quick story. We were at a main checkpoint, Kalandia checkpoint, leaving the West Bank. And uh, an elderly Palestinian man was walking up there. There's signs everywhere saying, you know, turn around, whatever, but they're in Hebrew. And so this man was walking up with his hands raised, clearly unarmed. And uh, we were in line in the car waiting to go through the checkpoint. And IDF soldiers just started spraying bullets at the guy. And they were ricocheting everywhere. We all ducked down in the car. Mike said, get down. We're, we're going to get fucking killed. Um, you know, this is speaking from someone who was an Iraq soldier who, who said that it was uh, felt like Iraq, like just being in Palestine for the short time that we were, which was a month. 
And luckily, the guy didn't get hurt, but they sprayed bullets everywhere, could have easily killed him as well as several other people just as collateral damage. Dan Cohen, the person that was driving us that day, said previously, I think a couple of weeks prior, they had just executed a pregnant woman there at the checkpoint for the same reason, for her not, you know, adhering to the sign. And then, of course, they always say that they found a knife. Um, and so that was their reason and justification for killing this pregnant woman. So it, it was a it was pretty intense and traumatizing. And I mean, there's so many more stories, but those are the ones that are seared into my brain forever. And then can you tell us how the uh, the project that would become Gaza Fights for Freedom came together? Yeah, when we were there, of course, we wanted to get into Gaza. Mike had already been there in 2009, um, bringing wheelchairs and stuff for the aftermath of cast lead. And I had all the proper press credentials. We had all the paperwork filled out. And I was told by Ron Paz, the underling of Netanyahu that oversees the press office, that I was a propagandist and not a journalist, and that I was also an enemy agent of Iran, <laughs> which I was like, oh, I, I thought I worked for Russia and Venezuela. Where did Iran come from? <laughs> um, but needless to say, it was scary to be within 48 and be called an enemy agent by the Israeli government. And, you know, basically, I was told that I was banned forever from getting into Gaza, which was a huge blow. I wanted to meet my friends and comrades there. I wanted to work with the journalists there. And, you know, I, I wanted to document the devastation that's subsidized by U.S. tax dollars, this apartheid criminal um, medieval siege and blockade of millions of people. So um, I had been in contact with my friends there. I think that was kind of the start of just being, you know, wanting to do something, knowing that I couldn't document it myself. So when the Great March of Return sparked off, which was really unlike anything that we'd ever witnessed, I mean, tens of thousands of people with bared chests going to just protest at the partitioned fence that separates them from their ancestral lands that, you know, they were going in the tens of thousands. Women led this contingent of people. And that one day, 60 people were gunned down in cold blood by snipers cowering behind sand dunes. Uh, it was one of the most egregious massacres of unarmed protesters in modern history. And we all know how the corporate media covered it. It was uh, a disgrace. They made it seem like they went um, they're, they're Well, they always make it seem like Palestinians are a death cult, but it, it was so grotesque, the corporate media coverage, and it was so one sided. It, it, it never ceases to shock me <laughs> when something like that happens. It's like, OK, well, how could they possibly apologize for Israel in this case? And they did. Um, and so I had a meeting with the journalists um, that I was supposed to meet initially when we were in Palestine from the Council on International Relations there. And we talked about collaborating on an Empire Files project to depict what the Great March of Return really was. And Eric, when we so I, I you know, I directed what interviews we wanted to get when this footage came in and it took months because of the blockade. We had to work around the electricity blockade, their Internet blockade. They only had electricity and you know internet for a few hours a day so this footage was trickling in trickling in excuse me for weeks and weeks and weeks when i saw the quality of this footage i was so blown away i just said we can't just make like an empire files episode about this we have to do a documentary and so mike and i took the entire year off um fundraised super grassroots from small donors and actually made a full feature-length documentary called gaza fights for freedom and it is it is a very, very um, 
important, I think, indictment of Israeli war crimes. And even though that may sound like, okay, well, we already know Israel's committing war crimes, it's it's all documented for you, actual targeting, snipers targeting protected categories of the Geneva Conventions, disabled people, children, journalists, and medics. And it's all right there. And I just hope that eventually when Palestinians get their day in court, um, this will be part of a long body of work that can help make their case uh, to finally hold Israel accountable for its crimes. But um, that's how it all came together. And we focus a portion of the film on Razan al-Najjar, of course, the first female medic to go and help the wounded on the uh, field. Um, the the you know, it was, it was a really, really sad story. And her mom didn't trust us because, of course, why would you trust just two American journalists doing a documentary about your daughter? And she was the first person to see the documentary and we got her uh, approval before we put it out and she really liked it. So I feel like that's a, a badge of honor. But yeah, our producer there didn't even want to attach his name to it because he didn't want to be punished by Israel. And a lot of the people involved in the Great March were punished and all the medical um passes to go get treatment were denied just as you know they just everyone was just uh punitively like denied treatment and so there's so many amputees it's it's hard to actually imagine what the what the fallout was from the march that actually went on for a year um and change people were going out there diligently every single friday um and and then, you know eventually the news just stopped caring unless a lot of people died, but it, it was an incredible thing, very symbolic, and of course it was all sparked up, sparked off by the moving of the embassy to Jerusalem. Actually, um, so you know that was a huge blow. And going back to Biden, he has said that he will not change that. <laughs> Well, your attempts to uh, get into Gaza were not the only uh, time in in recent years that you've run afoul of the Israeli government. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what happened uh, with one of your speaking engagements and uh, I guess what we should probably call uh, state repression directed by Israel against, uh, against you and against people like you. So talk a little bit about what happened and the lawsuit. Yeah, so um, a lot of people don't know that Israel, not Israel, a lot of people don't know that um, that the U.S., <laughs> sometimes it's hard to tell the difference because Israel is our greatest ally and is such a great collaborator with the U.S. empire, such a good lapdog. Uh, but a lot of people don't know that dozens of states in the U.S. have passed anti-BDS laws. And what BDS is, if people don't know, it's Boycott, Divestment, and Sanction Movement Against the State of Israel. This is the same kind of peaceful political movement that ended apartheid in South Africa. What BDS, anti-BDS laws are designed to do is to make independent contractors forfeit their constitutional rights in order to work in states uh, like the state of Georgia. So Georgia is one of dozens of states that have passed these legislative um, measures that block people from talking from block people from uh sorry i'm tired <laughs> it's past my bedtime i can't imagine how tired you are with two kids um that basically block people from uh being able to boycott the state of israel which is our constitutionally protected right to do the supreme court ruled after the montgomery bus boycotts in the civil rights era that political boycotts is constitutionally protected speech not to mention of course free speech 
is constitutionally protected, right? So I was slated to give a keynote speech at a media literacy conference in Georgia. Ironically enough, it was just supposed to be about media freedom. Um, at Georgia Southern University, I was given this contract that said I cannot boycott the state of Israel if I want to be paid my $1,000 honorarium. I was totally floored. I knew about these laws. Um, I had heard about, you know, a speech pathologist in Texas having to given this contract and denying it. She was on Democracy Now. Um, and I was just completely shocked. I said, obviously, I'm never going to sign this. I've been advocating um, for Palestinians my entire journalistic career. Of course, I can't sign this. Of course, I can't forfeit my rights to work in Georgia and, and give this keynote address. So the entire conference fell apart. And what ended up happening is I just uh, made the story public, not realizing that I could actually sue and challenge this law until CARE contacted me, the Council on America, American Islamic Relations contacted me and said, look, we can we can do something about this. We want to represent you. So I'm working with CARE and the Partnership for Civil Justice Fund, suing the state of Georgia, trying to overturn this unconstitutional law. Um, it is a flagrant and blatant violation of our rights. It is the biggest free speech issue today. Pro-Palestine speech is directly being censored and suppressed by the state. That is actual censorship. All of these cries about cancel culture and conservatives bemoaning about cancel culture on college campuses like Milo Yiannopoulos, Milo Yiannopoulos for being like booed when he gives a speech. No, this is censorship. This is censorship. The hand of the state blacking out certain speech. And it is coming down hard against Palestinians and Palestine activists. And that is exactly what happened to me. And I think it's important for people to realize this is literally anyone who wants to do any sort of work under a contract. You could be a construction worker. You could be a substitute teacher. Any work whatsoever, if you are making $1,000 or over, you have to sign a pledge that you will never boycott the state of Israel. It is, uh, it is really, really out there stuff, man. And um, I think the vast majority of people even if you totally don't agree with BDS at all, I think that you would agree that this is uh, a completely unconstitutional law and it needs to be overturned. And the fact that these have all passed under the radar really shows you the lobbying force of the government. And the fact that all of this criticism of Israel is masked in accusations of anti-Semitism, because that's pretty much how these laws have passed on a local level. After I filed my lawsuit against Georgia, Netanyahu's press office, press office tweeted the next day or the next day after that, they tweeted anyone who boycotts us will be boycotted. And then they followed up saying, like, we've worked really, really hard to pass these laws, these anti-BDS laws in the U.S. And it's like, OK, wait, isn't that a direct admission of foreign interference in our democratic rights? And then and then, Eric, I found out that a Georgia state legislature who pushed the state law. Um, testified at a hearing that the Israeli consulate, quote, asked her to introduce the amendment to the law to make my case moot. And the lawmaker actually appeared with her at a hearing. So she actually brought an Israeli consulate officer to the hearing to advocate to make my case moot, to change the actual um, cap. So they were trying to change it to $100,000. So like if, you know, just to render my case obsolete or whatever and throw it out. Um, so that is just unbelievable to me that they were openly conspiring with an Israeli consulate official and not to mention Netanyahu's office themselves 
bragging about passing these laws in the U.S. And Eric, if this if this contract said you cannot boycott, like this is the most ironic thing about it. You could boycott Georgian products. You could boycott U.S. products. Replace the word Israel with any other country and talk about how, how cartoonish that would appear to people. But it just like accept it. It's just like, well, Israel's our greatest ally. So, yeah, you know, and I, I think a lot of people obviously don't read these contracts, but that's the story in a nutshell. We're still waiting for the result. Um, it's all kind of slowed down because of COVID. But we did just get good news coming out of Arkansas a couple of days ago that just knocked down their unconstitutional anti-BDS law, which gives me hope that any judge who has studied the Constitution will know that um, they need to throw this law out, Eric, and hopefully eventually it'll go to the Supreme Court so we can have a final verdict because there's been mixed verdicts from several states. Just to put a final point on that, I think one one aspect of it, as you as you very um, you know eloquently stated, is that it is an obvious violation of our constitutional rights, of basic human rights, and so forth. But taking it another step, I think there's some there's another way to look at it, and that is that this is a tremendously positive sign for those who are doing Palestinian solidarity work, because look at how hard Israel is trying to stop this growing consciousness. And that's what they're really afraid of. It's particularly among those under the age of 50 that they are particularly concerned about as the truth of what uh, uh, Israeli fascism actually is, of what the apartheid state actually looks like, as that trickles out into the broader consciousness internationally and even in the United States. And particularly, it must be said, among young uh, American Jews who are are uh, increasingly rejecting uh, Zionist orthodoxy in, in terms of politics and so forth. So um, your case is actually, I would say, part of a broader struggle that is on the one hand about defending rights, but on the other hand, this is the forefront of the Palestinian solidarity movement. It is the growth of consciousness of what this issue really is. Well said, Eric. I, I couldn't agree more. And I think that Israel's running scared because before they were able to completely lock down the narrative, you know, but with the eruption of social media and Palestinians being able to film for themselves and reveal the criminal occupation firsthand to the world, public opinion has shifted dramatically on this. And you can look at something like the anti-war movement during the Iraq war buildup uh, 15 years ago, and pro-Palestine solidarity was not welcomed. Largely, there was a huge split in the anti-war movement. They said this was not the same struggle. They didn't want pro-Palestine messaging with uh, anti-war, you know, um, anti-Iraq war messaging. Now, I would argue it's the opposite. You are not welcome in anti-war circles if you are not pro-Palestine. And you are seeing uh, droves of young Jews walking off birthright, exposing birthright for the propagandistic um, conditioning that it really is, you know, and, and that is very, very encouraging, um, inspiring. And you're right. I mean, people all over the world, I would say, have already woken up to this. Americans are kind of the last to wake up to a lot of this stuff, even though our government's directly sponsoring it and <laughs> subsidizing these things. And we are the children of the empire. Nonetheless, American opinion polls have shifted dramatically as well. And I think that that's why you saw someone like Bernie Sanders, who just four years ago in the 2016 election could barely muster um, condemnation for Israel after the carpet bombing of Gaza in 2014. And now during his campaign, most recently, he 
constantly talked about Palestine. He was actually going farther than any other candidate as a Jewish man, saying he wanted to leverage aid. He wanted to uh, remove the settlements to the 1967 borders. I mean, that that was pretty serious stuff. And again, I think it's a testament to the strength of the Palestine solidarity movement and how much that movement has pushed the narrative in general to force um, at least rhetorical concessions or condemnations from a lot of these politicians. I mean, I, Netanyahu hasn't done it any favors either. He's been so blatantly fascist and right wing. And I think the Democratic field had a big problem because they couldn't explain away why they hated Trump so much. But Trump was so goddamn close with Netanyahu <laughs> to the point where he was like using him for his reelection campaign and stuff. So that was like a problem for them. So Biden will be much better, I think, with with uh, the Israel alliance now. Um, but yeah, I mean, absolutely. The Palestine movement has been growing dramatically and um, and it will not stop because once the consciousness is open there, you you can never look away again. And it, it all has to come from pressuring this government. We all know that it's coming from this government, because as many times as the United Nations or the ICC or whatever these international bodies, they're already on that page where they want to. Uh, they want to hold Israel accountable um, and the U.S. will not let them do it. It has veto power. It it continues to, you know, basically threaten um, other U.N. members if they want to hold Israel accountable at all for any of these atrocities. So it really, again, has to come down to American citizens pressuring this government and doing things like this, getting involved in Palestine solidarity causes and linking up with like minded organizations to really put Palestine um, liberation at, at at the front and center here because um, because that's what's needed in order to really uh, end apartheid once and for all. Couldn't agree more. We're over the time, but I'm going to just throw one last thing at you, Abby, if you, you take it in whatever direction you want. But I think that one of the main, um, you know, uh, overriding uh, issues and, and and ideas that I try to focus on is what you might call imperial continuity, right? Continuity from one administration to the next. The fact that what we're when we're talking about imperialism, that it is a system. It is not dependent upon one particular administration. It is a system, and in fact, it is a system with enough flexibility and wiggle room to actually have divides and 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 conflicts within its own ruling class and ruling establishment. But the continuity remains, and so um, one of the things that is so troubling about, you know, watching this uh, devil devolution in, of the United States and of the empire is just the fact that things seem to only get worse and worse when it comes to imperial power, right? If you go from, George, uh, from, from Bill Clinton and all of the disastrous policies, and then you carry that forward to 9-11 and Bush and the Patriot Act and the National Defense Authorization Act and all of these different things that have sort of formed the 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 architecture of the surveillance state the architecture of the police state that we all live in now and then obama just built that out further and capitalized on it and weaponized a lot of these things and did it to his own ends and then you have trump who is even more vicious and who does it in his own way and of course dismantles many institutions that would actually that, that are actually functioning within the state and now we move to biden and so what i'm what I'm getting at here is a process of one building on the next, right? That that what we have is a system in which the figurehead, the 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 leader of the ruling class, is merely a representation of the growing power, or maybe we should say the 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 degenerating power of the empire and of the state. 
I mean, I think that you just wrapped it up pretty pretty profoundly right there. I don't know what I could add. I, I totally agree with you. And it is just very disturbing um, to understand that truth, that the empire continues to grow. It continues to expand. It doesn't matter which administration is running it. Um, Democrat to Republican, Republican to Democrat, as we mentioned before, um, Obama oversaw dramatic escalations and Trump oversaw dramatic escalations of that. And now Biden's reinheriting the empire and not talking about reining any of it back. And so we're actually looking at a much bigger and much less accountable empire being run with Obama, with, I'm sorry, with Biden as the CEO, which is actually much more scary to me because again, he could be easily puppeted by people who have much more nefarious goals in mind. Um, and I think that's just the nature of imperialism. I mean, if you look back you, you mentioned the unipolarity, right, of the world today and like the, the drive for the U.S. to be the unipolar force. I mean, there was there was like different factions that were stronger. I think the Soviet Union being in play was a huge deterrent uh, for the empire being as strong as it is. But I also think that it also has to do with the desperation of a dying empire and failed state at home that you see it doing such egregious things around the world. Um, the continuation of the war on terror, these these drone wars. I mean, even someone like Bernie Sanders and so-called anti-war candidate Tulsi Gabbard didn't have anything to say about the drone wars. These things have been so conditioned and hammered into the American psyche as just necessary measures. And so all of this like discussion about the empire aside, it really has to come down to the education, the political education in terms of Americans, because if we are just this willfully ignorant about what our government is doing in our name, nothing will ever change. I mean, it, it is it is pretty astounding how much we are removed from what our government is doing and the cognitive dissonance that that reigns supreme in this country. Uh, and so I, I have to say that it really has to come down to learning uh learning what's going on in our names but yeah i mean it's it's uh it's pretty crazy eric i don't know how much worse it can get i think that you know scarily it, it can get a lot worse if we're really talking about warfare with russia and china but um it just seems like genocidal maniacs are at the helm constantly you know mike pompeo being this crazy uh religious zealot who thought the rapture was around the corner. We couldn't get any worse than that. But it seems like Tony Blinken um, isn't really differing when it comes to what's actually important. So, you know, it's just it's just window dressing on the same evil policies um, with the same nefarious intentions. And that is uh, all wrapped up in the package of saying, well, we need to do it, Eric, because if we're not the empire, someone else much worse. Right. Should the Chinese or the Russians will take our place, and we can't have that. So it's this bizarre justification to just commit endless crimes around the world. Um, and what I hope people can link together, and this is the importance of like linking these struggles with an anti-imperialist internationalist lens, because Black Lives Matter everywhere. Brown Lives Matter everywhere. It doesn't just stop and start at the border of the United States. And we really need to understand that the U.S. empire is a global thing. It's a territorial empire. Bases and military personnel are spanning the entirety of the, of the planet. 
And millions, tens of millions of people are living oppressed, subjugated under the boot of U.S. imperialism and militarism. And if we don't care about the people that extend beyond our borders, we're hopeless. And this really is an international movement. It has to come from understanding the solidarity, right, and having solidarity for people who are living uh, affected by the policies of this criminal government. So I don't I I just went off on such a long tangent, Eric, but um, I'm glad to talk to someone. It's very refreshing to talk to someone who really cares about these issues. And I think that um, more people are caring about this and and becoming politically conscious about empire and imperialism and war. Um, it seems like we're in this permanent war state and it's hard to really break through. Um, but I think that people, you know, there's a there's a change, especially with the anti-communism that's been the unofficial religion in this country for the last hundred years. I think for the first time in a long time, there's an opening and space for mass organizing to happen. And we just need to bring anti-imperialism into that because that is the reason why we don't have healthcare, why we don't have anything in this country. All of our money is being siphoned into this global empire uh, dominating, you know, tens of millions of people. And so if people really just understood that and we can really build around that, um, I think there's hope. I think that's the good note to end on. We want to end on a hopeful note. Abby Martin, thank you so much for, as always, helping us to uh, pick our way through all of these complicated issues. If you are not already subscribing, you should be subscribing to The Empire Files on YouTube, the website, theempirefiles.tv. You can uh, go check out the movie we talked about, gazafiesforfreedom.com is the website, and abbymartin.org for all of her artwork and everything. Abby is one of the leading voices we have in the anti-war movement and i'm very very happy to have spoken with her abby thank you so much for coming and chatting with us thank you so much for having me eric keep up the great work you do the same listeners thank you as always and we will chat again real soon